amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 140, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, first of all, we just want to say a warm welcome, if you do check out this podcast every week, and because I was looking through a few reviews that people have left on iTunes and the new Google podcast service and Facebook, the amount of people on there that give us a glowing review... And the comment I keep seeing all the time is, I've listened to every show since episode one. Wow, that's some, <laughs> that's some dedication. I, I don't know if I've listened to every episode. But 140. If, it's crazy. If you're a new listener as well, you can also look at our back catalogue and there's loads of guests. You know, we've had suggestions for some people and we're like, yeah, they were already on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so definitely check our back catalogue. But obviously the good thing about it is, like you said, we do have a lot of new people that have come through the door in the last couple of weeks because we're now on Audio Boom, we're on Spotify as well, a lot of new services. So if you have just discovered the Retro Hour podcast in the last couple of weeks, welcome on board. What took you so long? Uh, you finally made it, though, and we just want to quickly run through how this show works because we do kind of do the podcast in two halves, don't we? Yeah, so the first section we do is a news section, and this is like about topics of interest at the moment today. This week, we're going to be talking about ROMs, which yep. is a big controversy at the moment, and we're also going to be talking about some kind of old-school controllers for modern consoles. Yeah, so the first half, because I mean... It is weird to say that we cover retro gaming news because a lot of people think, well, how can there be new news about old (laughs) stuff? But if anything, the retro community is only getting more active in terms of new developments, new releases. So every week we kind of bring you up to speed on what's happening in the world of retro gaming and tech. And then the second half of the show, you can kind of think of that as like the main feature. That's when we bring you a veteran from the video game industry every single week. Now, we've had, like, yeah, nearly 140 guests, you know, bar, like, the Christmas quiz that we do every year. Uh, yeah, and this week we've got Brett Mogolowski, and he is the lead programmer and kind of writer and assistant designer of the cult game Grim Fandango, which got a remake in 2015. But, you know, this game was one of those really late adventure games by LucasArts, and oh, it's just absolutely fantastic. All about Mexico and the kind of Day of the Dead stuff, which is really relevant at the moment. And I love this interview as well because not only do you kind of get a bit of a an insight into what was going on at LucasArts in that period you know because do you remember that game The Dig that they released yeah yeah I remember The Dig or Full Throttle Sam and Max it was all kind of a totally out there adventure games weren't they they were very different well that got really big that genre then because you no know, The Dig that was a Steven Spielberg project and it was meant to be a movie but um, it was too expensive to make into a movie, so they put it out as an adventure game instead. But it proved how big these games were getting at that stage, you know, the mid-90s. I even remember before that, like, you know, getting Monkey Island 2 on, like, 15 floppy disks. It was, like, ridiculous. Totally, and, like, there was that transition between 3D and 2D, and games like Simon 3D really didn't do it well. But this game, absolutely fantastic transition over. And you'll even find out why. He is probably the world's biggest fan of Clippy in Microsoft Word. Yeah, there's some uh, (laughs) uh, really good tools used in this development. Uh, Unusual tools that you wouldn't usually 
uh, think of. So Brett Mogolovsky is our special guest coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And also this week's show is kind of a little warm up for something very special coming up over the next few weeks if you like adventure games. Now make sure that you stay tuned to the Retro Hour podcast over the next four episodes or so. We've got some really big stuff coming up. We'll tell you more about that next week though. Now before we get into our guest and this week's news stories, let's give a big thank you to the people who make it possible for us to do the Retro Hour podcast every single week. And that is the people who make a little donation into the running of the show. Uh, Because you know, Ravi and I, we come and do the show every single week. And like we said, 140 weeks we've been doing this for now. And the show is only getting bigger all the time. And we haven't had a week off, have we, Dan? We haven't been ill or anything. I don't think we've had a single one. I lost my voice once. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we had to get Joe in for that one, didn't we? (laughs) But, yeah, all your money kind of comes to help support the show and it will all go back into the show as well so it's not being used for glamorous trips or anything like that yeah exactly Rob's not using it on his train journeys to uh, Skegness on the weekend are you <laughs> glamorous <laughs> <Skegness. fish> <laughs> <laughs> so this week we want to say a big thank you to the people who've found it in their heart to support the podcast and allow us to keep doing it for you every single week and just for doing a donation of any amount you will find your place on the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Gary Hever. Paul Edwards. Lee Ashmore. And Benjamin Barter, who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour. And you can do the same either by PayPal or crypto. If you're into that, you'll find it all on the front page of theretrohour.com. Right then, before this week's special guest, Brett Mogolovsky, let's talk a bit about this topic of ROMs. It's been It's kind of been the main topic in the world of retro gaming over the last few weeks after Nintendo took down... A lot of the main ROM sites, I mean, ROMs for people who might not be that clued up, they're essentially the little files that you download to allow you to emulate older systems, aren't they? Yeah, they're kind of a direct copy taken off the original game. Yeah. Now, ROMs were kind of free for a long time uh, to be shared and uh, sent around online. But recently, Nintendo, who are the guys that always kind of clamp down on copyright, decided to like go the mafia. On, a, on a ROM <laughs> rampage, and uh, they took down Emu Paradise, which yeah. was one of the biggest sites. Uh, they've now taken down Cool ROM, I think, or Cool ROM have actually removed a lot of their ROMs and just the Nintendo ones. So we're noticing a lot of just Nintendo ROMs are disappearing online. Um, but we may have a little solution here. Well, this is um, actually a service that's been around for a long time, and you may know the name. It's called Console Classics. Now, this started in 2001, so it's been around, you know, um, 17 years now. Wow. And the idea behind this is, because ROM sites are, I mean, like you said then, Nintendo have either closed a lot of them down, but also I've noticed a lot of them are kind of taking the measure of protecting themselves by saying, oh, look, before they get in touch, we'll delete everything anyway. Yeah, a few have them up at the moment, or they're trying to do the kind of secrecy, you know, hiding under the radar. But while ROM sites are failing, they reckon a legal loophole that this website, Console Classics, um, essentially, they reckon that they're the only emulation service that's 100% legal. Now, the way it works is, it's kind of like renting a game from Blockbuster, but over the internet. Okay, so you're not actually receiving the ROM file, or are you? I mean, there are people that do kind of debate the legality of this. But what they do is, they offer instant access to thousands of ROMs, emulated games from systems like the Atari 2600, uh, ColecoVision, up to the N64 and the Game Boy Advance, and it lets you play these games exclusively. So their idea is, if you, Ravi, want to play Mario 64, you'll go on the website, you will rent that game, 
and nobody else can play that game while you're playing it. Ah, okay, I see. And all these games are then taken from physical cartridges. And uh, I can actually see here they have evidence of that where uh, the founder is actually showing all of his physical cartridges and they're showing the process of, uh, you know, with a NES reader kind of taking the actual ROM off that. So that's an interesting concept, definitely. Yeah, the ROMs are all ripped directly from. They've got over 7,000 actual cartridges and there is a little walkthrough video that they recorded a couple of years ago showing these. And... He's essentially saying the owner, it is just like renting a game from Blockbuster because obviously when these games came out, the concept of ROMs didn't exist. So it wasn't really written in like the terms and conditions and rules and all that of yeah. buying the game. So it is interesting. Um, it does kind of build up quite a debate. I mean, looking at the comments on this article here on Ars Technica, there are people kind of falling, you know, both sides of the, the argument here. Some people are saying, or just use a torrent and play entire catalogues, that's fair enough. But what they're saying is, the stage that we're at now with ROMs is essentially the same place that we're at with MP3s versus record labels 15 years ago. Yeah. So the problem was solved when the copyright holders then realised that, look, people want to play these games. We're essentially sitting on a goldmine here. If they give people who were, you know, pirating the games before a really convenient, easy way of playing them, and it only costs like a couple of quid a week. Well, I also think this is why this has appeared, because there's yeah. been these mini consoles coming out and Nintendo want to protect their kind of IP when they didn't give a damn about it before. No. So, yeah, now they've realised they can make some money out of it. And there are a lot of people here also talking about the fact that it is a bit irritating because unless you download the ROMs, there wasn't really a way to play any of these games without you know paying massive fees for them on eBay, for example, to get a physical copy of it. And no one's really winning there apart from, you know, people earning a quick book on eBay. Nintendo and Sega and that aren't profiting out of those copies sold on eBay. But they're also kind of taking the mickey a bit out of fans of these old games by charging them over and over again, like 5 to $10, to buy it on every new generation of Yeah, yeah, like out. at the moment they're just releasing a load again for the uh, Switch now yeah. and they've probably released them in the past as well. So uh, it, it's an interesting debate, definitely, and it would be great to keep an eye on this and uh, hear your opinions as well. If, if you guys want to tell us what your views on ROMs are and the kind of legality of it all. And if maybe a service was set up, I mean, would you use this service here? where essentially, you know, you can rent a game like, you know, you could back in the day. Yeah, we always like to get your feedback, so you can tweet us at RetroHourUK. But someone actually made a good comment on this um, this article here, that essentially what this service is doing is what Netflix were doing in their early days. They were, like, ripping DVDs. Yeah, and yeah. sending them to people's houses and stuff, weren't they? But also there's, like, Antstream that's coming up, which yeah. is going to be another gaming streaming thing. And I think that one would work a bit different. It would probably be licensing the games with it's the streaming company, it as well, isn't it? And yeah. they're streaming it, yeah, which is a, another way of delivery, I guess. But I think it's like anything. It's like with music, it's like with movies. If you're going to go digital with them, people will pirate if it's easier than doing it legally, I think. Yeah. But if you give them a service that's affordable and it's dead easy to get access to their favourite games, they'll probably get under the And also, route. it's like this has been going on for years. Like, yeah. even pre-internet, I was getting ROMs on floppy disks. and You know, so the kind of uh, ROM games are a lot longer than the MP3 one. You know? There's also some interesting conversation about whether or not copyright laws are kind of outdated. Because I think in America at the moment, it's... Um, you know, when a product's made, a work, you know, work of art, for example, yeah. or a book or something, it's normally 70 years after the author's death, I believe, which is, you know, a long time in... I mean, for literature, maybe not as long, but for video games. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not even been around 70 years. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Because, uh, 
yeah, with the licenses, and then you could get into the legality of emulators. So we'll leave you guys to do that, continue that conversation. <laughs> but I mean, should it be maybe should that be reduced to twenty years for games? You know, yeah. if, if they're not earning active sales from them. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on about it at the moment. But there are legal ways that are coming through if you want to get your games and you feel a bit bad about downloading them. Right, let's talk about a classic game that has been really hyped up over the last. Well, a couple of years, really, everyone's been talking about this. We finally got a release date for Shenmue 3. Yeah, so uh, if you don't know about Shenmue, it was, oh God, it was really one of those early kind of sandbox games, wasn't it? For the, um, it was just after the Virtual Fighter kind of games in that era. Uh, what console was it? Dreamcast. Dreamcast, yes. I never had it. Have <laughs> you ever played those games? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've had a, I've had a play. I, I, I found Shenmue quite boring, but that's probably because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, it is regarded as you know, Yu Suzuki, obviously, probably regarded as the greatest game on the Dreamcast by many people. Either you know, Shenmue one or two. Interestingly, there is um, there are people who debate how you pronounce it as well. Some people call it Shenmue. Uh, I've always called it Shenmue though, and being such a cult classic as well. People have been dying for a remake of it or, um, you know, a new version to follow up the story. Because Totally. It's... Well, I, I go to shows mm. and I see a copy of Shenmue, like the original of Shenmue yeah. 2, and they'll be hitting the £100 kind oh, of boxed. barrier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the first two games, I mean, the Shenmue 2 came out in 2001. No, I remember reading about Shenmue in Amiga magazines. Mm. When it was in <laughs> development. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was going to be a Saturn game at first. But, I mean, the story when it was written was originally meant to be um, 11 chapters long. So that's a lot to fit, you know, that story to fit into a couple of video games. Um, But then, you know, originally they planned these two games, but they had so much of the story, they couldn't fit it all into those two. And fans have been crying out for a third part for like 15 years. And then there was a Kickstarter that ran a couple of years back. It got funded. But everyone's been like, well, you know, when's it coming out then? So we finally got a date and it is going to be... Unfortunately, you've got about a year to wait. August 27th, 2019. Okay, well, I was watching a, a really cool talk, and I, I suggest you all watch this, which was the kind of launch talk with uh, Adam Kirillik, and yep. he was doing it in America, so it's on his channel at the moment, and he was talking about how he's actually visited the locations of Shenmue, and there's certain stuff, like there's a, a guy just eating burgers in the computer game. He says that is an actual local resident in that area of Japan that sits there and eats burgers. So it's really cool to kind of look at that talk if you want to know more about the history. Also, there was a remaster of Shenmue 1 and 2. Just came out, didn't they? Just came yeah. out recently, and there there was a few little problems with it, like a CPU load and stuff like this. So they've actually released some patches now for uh, Shenmue 1 and 2, and that's for the PC version. So the Xbox and PS4 ones were fine, but the PC's just got a bit of an optimization, and that's really cool because it shows that, you know, even though they've released these ones, they're still going to put some effort in to make it really shine. Well, again, I think because these titles have kind of gained, like, a cult kind of following over the last, like, you know, two decades... A lot of younger people who've probably watched videos on YouTube that maybe haven't got a Dreamcast or an old Xbox, you know, they, they haven't been able to play the games, yeah. now can by getting the remastered versions of them. But also, now you get this um, third part of it as well, which is, you know, headed up by Suzuki himself. They've released a new trailer for it. It's uh, Shenmue 3 The Prophecy. Um, a new little trailer, which um, I'll put a link in our show notes um, at theretrohour.com. It's embedded in this Eurogamer article. Uh, and it looks actually, the style of it is very faithful to the original two games. And I think that's a good thing. So originally I thought, you know, what, are they going to go all out and kind of completely change the look 
of it and it won't feel like a Shenmue game, but it actually does. I mean, it's obviously high resolution for modern systems, but it does look like it if it's well into that universe. But I was reading something quite interesting. You mentioned about those um, those HD upgrades. Yeah. There was a bit of an issue with it because, do you know Shenmue is like a real-time kind of game? Yeah, yeah. It all runs in real time, doesn't it? So it's yeah. kind of like the day cycle is 24 hours kind of thing. And that is locked to the frame rate of the game. So they said when they're doing these HD upgraded versions, they couldn't like double it to like 60 FPS because then the day would like run at twice the speed. So that was one of the issues they had with them doing the upscale versions. And I guess with free though, they don't need to use any of the original assets or anything. They just go straight for a, a new version, new engine, and everything. Yeah, but I know a lot of people have been very excited about it. So I mean, look, you got a year to wait for it, but you know we have waited 17 years anyway. What's another 12 months? <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about something a little bit random. A man got his son to climb into an arcade to steal the games. Yeah, so I, I've just been seeing this all over the news. And um, it's one of those Keymaster arcades, you know, the ones where you have to kind of select the key and then uh, pull it out of this little section. And they're quite big arcade units. Well, in this video, this guy gets his, I don't know if it's his son or someone else's kid, Basically, gets the kid, puts him inside the arcade unit. The wow. kid goes inside the arcade unit, picks out uh, a prize, <laughs> and then uh, returns it to him. I think that's absolutely shocking. <laughs> so, yeah, this kid had crawled inside, and he's pinching the prizes that you meant to play the game for by going into the hole where the prizes fall out. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought that was a cool little thing to put on. It's, it's not very cool. It's very dangerous and naughty, but, um, yeah, wow. Well, the police are looking for this guy at the moment. I wonder so. what the prize was. You know, that he was that desperate to get it. From my experience when I've seen those, those like, not the best prizes in the world, are they? They're kind of the things you get from those ticket machines, aren't they, normally? Yeah, yeah and they're... someone's filmed it as well, so it's been put online and, like, what a silly guy. Do you remember that episode of the IT crowd where Moss That's wants to exactly get That's exactly what he reminded me of, I could just imagine. Oh, an iPhone! Yeah. He's in there all night, yeah. That's, that's the first thing I thought when he sent me this video. <laughs> now, before we get into our chat with uh, Brett Mogolovsky, let's talk a bit about the Nintendo Switch. Um, I know we do cover it quite a bit in this show, and it is a modern system, but there is a lot of good retro stuff on there as well. Today, actually, the time we're recording this, uh, Nintendo's online service is about to launch in about an hour. Um, and that's going to bring with it a lot of original NES games that you can play on there. I think pricing is actually not that bad. Yeah, start charging for it. I think it's $20, $20 a year. For the I, I, I just hope they introduce the virtual console because then we can hack it and <laughs> run a GameCube stuff on it. <laughs> well, as soon as it launches, you're going to be able to play uh, Dr. Mario, um, Mario Brothers 1, 2, and 3, Donkey Kong, Legend of Zelda, Double Dragon. So quite a lot of the original NES catalogue. But playing it with the little Joy-Cons, probably not that much fun. No, you, you, you want a classic controller, don't you? Well... <laughs> They've just released a NES-style one, and these are actually really cool. Unlike other controllers I've seen for yeah. the Switch, these slide into the side. They replace the Joy-Cons. They're actually, like, official. Yes, yeah, so and Nintendo have made these, and they're releasing them as a pack of two. Um, like you said, they do slot on the side of the console, but I don't think you can use them as, like, a replacement for the Joy-Con. They haven't got, like, the motion controls and all that in there. No, no, no but they, they, they fit, don't they? Yeah, they yeah. can to charge them up, you can put them on there. But what's really cool is, I mean, you do get a pack of two. Some people are complaining that $60 are a bit expensive, but I think for two controllers that are wireless and rechargeable. Oh, yeah, no, I think that's quite good. It, yeah. it depends how they feel as well. If they feel light and plasticky and stuff, then, yeah, maybe not. But I, I wouldn't expect Nintendo to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, they've got enough experience making those controllers. You'd imagine if anyone can do it and make it, you know, feel authentic, it would be them. But I also do like the fact that they are wireless because obviously on the NES Mini, you had, they were wired, weren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, That's probably, yeah, That's fantastic. And they've got shoulder buttons, though, apparently. Oh. Which is a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure what what use that will have. You know, I'm sure some people will find them. Um but that, that is really cool, because if you're going to play those original games, and we had a conversation about it last week, didn't we? About, you know, how important it often is to have the right controller for, that the game was designed for. Yeah, totally. Like, um, at the moment, I've kind of been emulating stuff, and uh, I've, I've just found for the Wii U, uh, I've been emulating GameCube games. Mm. And it's hard to play it on the uh, Wii U Pro Pad, but I just found an adapter where you can actually put it in the Wii U and play original GameCube controllers. And... Feeling the original controllers with the kind of original game is really what you want. Yeah, and I think having this controller available, uh, if you're going to play those old NES games, it's like, you know, I think it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Everyone's going to go out and buy those. I've looked at them. I've got a NES, an original. I want them. Yeah, and also (laughs) they've been massively copied by everyone, haven't they, at the moment? So it's about time Nintendo did one themselves. Well, didn't we cover that last year? Wasn't it like the trademarks kind of expired for them now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, For the D-pad, wasn't it? Yeah, so, uh, but you know, if you want a quality one, there are a lot of clones around, but, you know, hopefully Nintendo are going to do a good job. I imagine they will. So if you want to find out more about that and all the stories that we've talked about in this week's show, you can get them all at theretrohour.com. Please do keep your nice reviews coming in on your favourite podcast kind of choice, you know, little four or five star is always appreciated yeah and uh, join us on discord as well we've always got a good conversation going on there and tweet 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 yeah you've been tweeting quite a lot on there recently i know yeah. last week we were at, um we're in cambridge weren't we for the um the retro computer festival oh, at the computer center so good teletype machines you could tweet a teletype machine and it would print <laughs> it out <laughs> old school style and i was just sitting there completely nerding out on this um silicon graphics workstation uh, yeah, you, you had to drag me off it in the end, I think, didn't you? Yeah, you were like, oh, the N64. <laughs> was based on this machine. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, if you want to have a look on Twitter, we, we took a load of pictures actually that weekend. Um, just have a little scroll back, at Retro Hour UK. Same address if you want to tweet us and say hi as well. Maybe any news stories you'd like us to cover next week, as we will have more news in next week's podcast, and there's something very special over the next few weeks if you love adventure games. Make sure you hang around for that. Now, speaking of adventure games, time to get into this week's special guest. I'll chat with the assistant designer of the legendary Grim Fandango, lead programmer, writer, all these stories about LucasArts. This is such a good one. Our special guest this week is Brett Mogolovsky. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event. This week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Brett Mogolevsky. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Now, before we get into uh, your stories about you know your time at Lucasfilm Games, and uh, we've got some really interesting stuff that we want to go through with you. I mean, it's always nice to get a bit of a, a background on our guests and find out where it all began for you. I mean, what was the the start of your journey with computers and video games, and where did it all begin? Let's see. First computer experiences, I think, were Commodore sixty four and Commodore PET. Uh, we had a, we had a Commodore PET in our classroom at school. And one of the first things they introduced us to it, uh, was a game, of course. Um, it was called. Um, like Miser or Miser House or something like that. And it was basically a text adventure. Um, and so that was my earliest experience was the teacher at the front of the room saying, you know, reading the description of a, you know, you're in front of a house and there's a doormat and what do you do? And then taking suggestions from the class as to what to do and, and us all kind of interacting with it. And then, you know, a couple of summer courses of teaching, of, of uh, learning uh, basic on the color pet. And then uh, I had a Commodore 64, my, my elderly grandfather in, um, in Wales. Believe it or not, this elderly grandfather was like, I hate paying for postage and I hate how long it takes to send letters to my kids. 
and I hate paying for long distance calls. So I'm going to get my grandkids this Commodore 64. I'm going to mail it to them with a modem and I'm going to have a modem on my side set up and I'm going to have them dial from their modem to my modem during certain hours and we'll initiate a file transfer of our letters to each other. Um, so that was short-lived, although uh, much kudos to my, my elderly grandfather for figuring it out. Well, you were very ahead of the curve then in that case, because I mean, not many people were emailing Transatlantic on a Commodore 64 back then, I imagine. Yeah, and it wasn't even really email. It was just transferring files. He was uploading text files to each other. Um, I think my grandfather was just you know, desperate for connection. He was just very remote from his family on the West Coast. Yeah, we were, we were uh, very lucky in that case. Well, did that adventure game that you played at school then kind of open your mind to adventures? And were you quite you know, interested in that? And did it kind of give you lots of interesting ideas? Oh, yeah, I loved adventure games. And actually, I think, I think one of the first things I, tr- I ever tried to write in BASIC was my own adventure game. And of course, I, I had no idea. I, I knew how flow control worked, but I didn't know how to store any state. And so, you know, you'd walk to your room and you do something, and you walk out and then you walk back in and then like it's all reset. And I, I didn't really understand what I was doing at the time, but it was the first thing I think I ever tried to program. And of course, you know, uh, during that time, um, a lot of adventure games were popular. Uh, some, some on, even on the C64, we, I played the... the um, maybe I think it was uh, Fahrenheit 451 game I, I, which is dramatically underrated a terrific old adventure game uh, you know had sort of static you know one sort of evocative graphic on screen to help you understand where you were and then mostly text adventure from there yeah early text adventures were, were it for me I mean I, I played everything I played Amnesia I played you know as many Infocom games as you can name I was all over those I mean obviously I played you know other things that, that were you know more video game like like uh Ghostbusters and things like that. I think we had an Atari um, and a ColecoVision before that. But for me, it was always about adventure games. Um, did you play a lot of Lucasfilm games yourself as a child? And uh, were any your favorite? Yeah, so um, actually, uh, I went through a period where, you know, we had the Power 64, and then my, my father had a uh, IBM PC Junior clone for his business. He was just running a single spreadsheet on it, but when, whenever he wasn't using it, my brother and I were playing Wizardry on it. I got to the point where, um, you know, by my teenage years, we'd moved, and I, I had got to the point where I was, you know, okay, I got I to build my own PC. Around that time, you know, there was sort of a mix between the Commodore-level stuff and the, and the PC-level stuff. I was playing a lot of uh, LucasArts adventure games. Um, I loved Maniac Mansion. That was terrific. I loved the sort of non-linearity of it, that you could pick different characters and, and have things work. I did not appreciate the Pixel Hunt, but nobody did at that time. But I thought it was it was just amazing. Uh, I did a lot of other sort of Sierra stuff around that time, but the LucasArts stuff was, was just, you know, the humor was always there and the sort of... Um, they hadn't quite gotten to the no dying part at that point. There's a lot of ways to die in, in Maniac Mansion, but they were getting there. And um, so I played I played Maniac Mansion. I played um, Zach McCracken, which I quite loved, um, and I finished. And uh, it was around that time that um, I was looking for summer jobs, and that's when I first kind of had the idea that I could potentially work in the game industry. Actually, I, did, I didn't even have that idea. It was my brother. Uh, my brother is five years older than me. He was finishing film school and didn't want to work in L.A., which is really kind of crazy to finish film school and not work in L.A. But um, he was looking at the uh, at, at Lucasfilm, and you know they're up in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, closer to where where I lived. Yeah. And he called a um, a job hotline, which because you know there's no internet at that point, so you call job hotlines at the companies you're interested in, and you listen. Uh, and they were going on the list of things, and there was nothing for him, but he heard uh, Tester in our new computer games division. And uh, he said, well, my brother plays all kinds of games and he lives near there, so maybe he's interested. So uh, thanks to my brother mentioning that to me. Um, I ended up making uh, what you might call a resume, but for a kid who's 15 in high school, the resume consisted of like, here's all the games I finished. 
and it was quite a list of games at that point because I was, you know, I was a big gamer, but I was definitely able to list um, the LucasArts games, or the, sorry, LucasFilm games at the top. I think I'd already played Loom at that point too. So I had uh, I had Loom, Zach McCracken, Maniac Mansion, and miraculously, in the in the nascent computer game industry at the time, that was enough to get me an interview as a tester on a on a game group. It must have kind of felt like the dream job, you know, um, kind of turning up at a games company wh- where you'd loved playing these games. What was the atmosphere like at that time? Uh, well, it definitely was a, was a dream job. It was a little terrifying because I hadn't really applied for any job at that point. Um, and I was very interested in it, obviously, but I, I had no idea if they would hire kids my age. I just got my driver's permit. Uh, I had to drive across the Bay Area and you kind of drive up to the, you know, at this time, Lucasfilm Games was on Skywalker Ranch, which is a... George Lucas's uh, sort of retreat where he did a lot of post-production film work, um, maybe a pre or post-production film work on this ranch up in the hills. And so I kind of drove through all these hills and you end up on this sort of back, you know, very rural highway, like, like you'd see in a car commercial. And then 5656 Lucas Valley Road, you know, not named for George Lucas. It just happened to be Lucas Valley. And uh, you bring at the gate. It's very nondescript. And somebody says, who's there? And you say, I'm here for an interview. And the gate opens. And then you're suddenly seeing fire trucks that say Skywalker Ranch on them, you know, and you're seeing this old ranch house and, and all these things around. Um, so it was really kind of surreal uh, because, it, you know, there were legends of, of Skywalker Ranch at that time of like, you know, people going there for trick-or-treating and coming away with like props for movies and things. And so it was, it was, it was kind of legendary and, and very intimidating. You know, imagine also this is my first real job interview and I'm wearing the nicest clothes I have, which is what a 15-year-old would wear to a dance in the 80s, maybe. And uh, so I drove up on the ranch and, um, you know, it's just kind of very laid back atmosphere. I parked, uh, there was a, um, they had a bunch of houses at the ranch. It was designed to look like it had always been there. So, you know, there's the main house and the stable house and the, and the gate house and things like that. But realistically, like the stable house, which is where, you know, you would expect in the, in the sort of faux history of the ranch was where people parked their horse and carriage was actually over a parking garage. You go underground to modern parking garage, but above ground, it looks like, you know, an old stable. And then, uh, what, you know, somebody, somebody took me in and they said, uh, oh, you're going to meet over, I think it's a uh, Creek house or, or something like that. Uh, that's where games is and games at that time, Lucasfilm games is, is, you know, they're kind of squatting in the shadow of this, uh, burgeoning star Wars empire. And so it's this kind of wacky group of people. This is all the early people, the, um, the David Foxes and the, and the Brian Moriarty's and so on kind of being turned loose to do new things with computer games while the rest of the company is thinking about you know, Star Wars and film and ILM and so on. Uh, so I turned up on this building, which is where they had the testing group. And it's literally like one big room full of people, um, you know, a bunch of computers and falling all over the place. And um, uh, two people there, uh, Judith Lucero and, um, oh, geez, Kirk Ralston interviewed me. And uh, they took me out on the deck. They're wearing, you know, like shorts like they just came from the beach and sunglasses. And I'm, you know, sweating in my leather tie, you know, skinny leather tie and my uh, my button-up shirt. They just started interviewing me. And they're just very casual, um, very sort of laid back. Um, you know, clearly they were relaxed and having a good time and, you know, working in this sort of weird, ideal environment. And they asked me questions. You know, they said, you know, what do you like, to, what do you like about these games? You know, how long does it take you to play them? You know, how do you approach them? Have you ever found any bugs? Have you ever played any bar games? Which parts were good or bad? You know, pretty much for a kid who was into games, that's kind of the ideal interview. So although I was nervous, uh, opened up pretty quickly, and um, they said, you know, even in that interview, they're like, okay, so should we put him on Monkey? And I didn't know what Monkey was at that time, but I, I found out very quickly that was the secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island, which I hadn't heard of before. So 
when they were interviewing me, they were initially interviewing because they were expanding the testing group because uh, Monkey Island had just come on the scene. Well, testing um, Monkey Island and kind of Indiana Jones games, you know, it must have blown your mind seeing these for the first time. Um, did you realize they would become massively global hits like they were? No. Um, I mean, I, I knew that um, Indiana Jones obviously has a lot of, of brand cachet, and already I knew that would be popular, and I, I played Last Crusade, and I knew that, you know, the adventure games were getting better and better. But Fate of Atlantis, I had no idea how big it would be and how good it would be as an independent Indiana Jones thing. And also, um, Monkey, there was really no concept at the time. I mean, I knew that, you know, Maniac and Zack were, they did okay, uh, Loom did okay, but I didn't really have the notion that, that Monkey was going to be a sort of cultural touchstone for gamers. That was certainly new to me. Although, I, you know, as soon as I started playing it, it, it felt different. It felt just so, so much more sort of free, like it was struggling less with the technology and it was more just able to kind of say what it needed to say and be what it needed to be. And, and you know, just so much more easygoing in terms of the character, just dialogues and things like that. But at the same time, there were all kinds of crazy things going on there, you know, with sort of very much more tactical games like Battle of Britain and Super Weapons of the Luftwaffe, which were, you know, really pushing bleeding edge on, on 3D simulation at that point. So there's a lot of stuff going on all at once. Um, the other thing is that when I saw these games, you know, they, they don't arrive complete, <laughs> you know, and, and to be a tester in games, you have to really, um, you have to treat games almost like a, like breaking the game is the puzzle that is the game because you're going to be playing a game that's incomplete and broken. And if you've ever been annoyed with a bug in a game that needs you restart, well, you know, when you test games, you're going to be restarting 50, 50 times a day. And you're probably going to rush right back to the place where you were and try and reproduce the bug in a crash. So there's a, you know, when you approach these games, they're not necessarily in the sort of immaculate shape that you would expect. And there's a lot of placeholder art and things just not wired up. And sometimes you're like, okay, is this a bug or is it just because they haven't done this part yet? So as a tester, you're kind of first to the gate. Um, you get a you get a look at a game in a fairly rudimentary and raw form. So yeah, I, I, I don't know that I, I knew that Monkey was going to be big. I knew that it was going to be the best adventure game yet. There's no question, but... You know, it was still very incomplete, like sword fighting, sword fighting insults weren't in, you couldn't get past the, set, the first island, things like that. Testing adventure games as well, I mean, there's that many different options in them as well. I imagine you must have to test everything like four to five times and every bit of dialogue had to be tested out as well. There's quite a lot to do there. Yeah, and sometimes it's also doing things in different order. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's just noticing things that are off and then sort of pulling on the thread until you find something that's like, oh, man, I just fell through the floor, like, you know, this is obviously thinly thinly covered, and they didn't think of doing this. Um, a lot of things with adventure games are it's like you try interactions that aren't there, and a lot of your bugs are like, there's obviously something to be said here. Like, why isn't there a joke here, or why isn't he referring back to this thing? Um, you know, instead of getting what's with the sort of generic response of I can't do that, uh, which in adventure games, you know, everything you try should get custom response if at all possible. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of our bugs there that we would file would be around. Um, there's you know, things they hadn't thought to try, or, or and sometimes those would lead to you know an actual animation or, or something going in there. Um, for Neon Jones, the Fate of Atlantis, which I also started testing immediately when I came in, um, I'm actually kind of really proud of that one because that one I I I was the only tester on it for a long time, and I um they, they at LucasArts they or sorry LucasFilm Games I keep I keep saying LucasArts because I, I was at LucasArts for so long, but when, at this point it was LucasFilm Games. Yeah. They had what are, they they had bug classes A B C D E. And uh, A is like a crash. It's obviously crashed. And the game is over and you have to restart. B is ugly and it's obvious it's a bug, but the game didn't crash. C is, you know, you might notice this is a bug. D is design, like a problem with design or the way it's put together. And E is suggestion. 
And uh, I'm sure the programmers didn't appreciate this, but I put in ridiculous numbers of DNA bugs for Fate of Atlantis, which are, you know, trying to make it a little bit more rooted in the Indiana Jones universe and, you know, things you could try, or especially in the opening scenes when that's all I had to play, where it's like, is this just a random person or is this Indiana Jones? What am I playing here? So there's a, there's a lot of input as a tester at that point, which I think is maybe not a thing in the industry as much now. Um, you know, games are such large productions that you have these large testing staffs and large development staffs, and they tend to be on different floors and very separate. And by the time something's reaching testing, it's already, you know, in a pretty playable state uh, because of the investment there. But at this point, it was, you know, games are still very, you know, they're made by groups of 10 people and, you know, 10 testers that test everything. Well, um, one of my favorite stories, I think, that, that really elaborates what it's like to be a tester at that point was, you know, there's a, my friend put in a bug, uh, called Gary, he said, uh, he was testing Monkey 2 at the time. He said, you know, if I, if I pick up the spit twice, I get two spits in my inventory, and that shouldn't be possible. That's a B bug or a C bug. Like maybe maybe you don't know what that is. But then the, he amends the report and says, if you pick up 256 spits, the game crashes. Now it's an A bug because I've crashed the game. And that to me is like, that is the exemplary of like the tester mindset of like, okay, I'm going to push on the borders of this. and like, where does it fall apart? That That's the kind of thing we were doing at that point. Well, you mentioned there that um, it was Lucasfilm Games originally, and later on you went to join when it was LucasArts. Did you see much of George Lucas at this point? And did he have many interests in gaming, or was he kind of wrapped up with Star Wars? Well, I mean, when I started Lucasfilm Games, they just moved off of Skywalker Ranch. You know, between my interview and the uh, actually starting the job, I never got to work on the ranch, but um, moved on to the same sort of uh, office park as, as Industrial Light and Magic. We had kind of, you know, these company-wide events. Um, Halloween party was huge. ILM, you know, all these people making amazing costumes for for Halloween contests. And we had a, a huge Christmas party. And um, there was this enormous uh, sort of county, county fair style, you know, retro style um, uh, picnic for 4th of July on Skywalker Ranch with like watermelon toss kind of thing. Um, you kind of see George around there. Like you kind of see him around kind of quietly there with his daughter. You know, if you went to have lunch up on the ranch and you were in the main house, you might, you might see George having lunch with somebody. George is very quiet and he's very private. And um, there's this sort of bubble around him of like, don't approach George. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of people in the games industry, uh, games group at that point are, are huge Star Wars fans that were obviously not working closely with the films or, or the production on that side. And so when we see him, it's kind of like we're on the other side of a piece of glass and kind of try not to look directly at him kind of thing. <laughs> I will say the games group itself, uh, we always felt like the stepchild that he didn't want. Um, you know, George is, is a bit of a marketing mastermind and, and, mer- and merchandising and licensing was obviously uh, a huge innovation with Star Wars and where a lot of the, the money in the company was made. Um, you know, games was initially sort of an auteur-based thing, you know, sort of like we're going to, going to be pioneers of this new medium and, and that's sort of the earlier days of, of, you know, Ballblazer and Fractalis and, and, you know, Loom and, and crazy stuff like that. But over time, as the game industry developed, he was looking at it more as an adjunct to his other properties. So while I was there uh, between Lucasfilm games and LucasArts games, I, I, I had gone away to college and come back and, you know, games had become, you know, at the time I come back in the meantime, there'd been like, um, uh, let's see, um, Day of the Tentacle and Full Throttle and The Dig, uh, Sam and Max, uh, all those adventure games. And so, you know, those are all very creative and, and unique and interesting games. Right as I came back, uh, they were doing 
outlaws, but they were also had just done dark forces. Um, and so dark forces, I think kind of broke open the notion that like, Hey, if you combine this sort of gaming, you know, know-how with this licensing, you get something, you know, there's an appetite for that that hasn't been there. I mean, obviously they've done things like, you know, whatever the star Wars or empire Nintendo games or Atari games, things like that, but they weren't quite at that level. And dark forces really as a sort of technical leading edge thing, um, I think maybe open their eyes to the idea that they were underutilizing the games group to, to focus the film properties and, and, and extend them. So there definitely came a point in time where it felt like, okay, now George is looking at us as like, why aren't you making Indiana Jones games? Why aren't you working, making Star Wars games? Well, Brett, let's talk about Grim Fandango. Um, when did you first hear about it and what were the inspirations for that game? So Grim Fandango, it, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I, obviously I kept in touch with some people through college and I was coming back. I actually, I visited people in the testing group periodically. I, I did know Tim, uh, Tim Schaefer from his time when he was working on Monkey Island um, when I was there uh, in high school and early college. So I was visiting and I saw him in the parking lot and, and he asked me how I was doing. And, you know, he saw that I had some ridiculous electronics project in my back seat. You know, I was going to college at the time. And he's like, Hey, so, you know, are you learning a program? I said, yeah. He said, well, you should apply. Why not? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know, whatever. I was very shy about it, but um, I think that encouragement helps the notion that, you know, Hey, like having, you know, knowing how games are made as a tester and now being a programmer, maybe this is a thing I could do. So I applied and um, I was interviewed by a bunch of people who were working on Jedi Knight, who were working on Outlaws and uh, people who were about to work on Grim Fandango. And um, the interview process itself was interesting, but I, I kind of, got a sense of the flavor of each team and um, the outlaws team was actually very attractive just in terms of the tech they were doing and their approach. But ultimately I was there for adventure games. That's what I loved. Um, so when I came in, they gave me a little bit of a choice, but I was kind of already earmarked for, for Tim's team. Um, and they just, at that point it wasn't called Grim Fandango. It was called Tim's dead game um, because it was Tim's game about the day of the dead. And um, uh, it didn't, it didn't have a name. It, it had a, I believe like a, a five page story treatment, which was basically, it wasn't even a story. It was, um, it was Tim talking about like, I'm going to make a game and it's going to be based on day of the dead and like big daddy Roth, hot, um, hot rod stuff. And you're going to be death, but death is a salesman. And, um, it's more Glenn Glenn Ross and like all this kind of mishmash of this stuff. And it sounded crazy. Like it sounded ridiculous, but, um, you know, uh, Tim was uh, very influential and very freewheeling and very um, compelling for his sort of ability to kind of be creative in, those, in that realm. You know, unlike Outlaws, which is a little bit more of a built-up team, this is a team that was starting from scratch. So I got to go in there and basically be the first programmer on the team. It was a total kind of change in direction uh, for LucasArts as well, uh, because that wasn't really popular in modern culture. At the moment, we see like Book of Life and films like Coco and stuff all about the Mexican and Aztec traditions, but we don't really, uh, didn't see anything about it back then. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, this was, this is totally new. And, uh, this is something I really appreciated about Tim and other people at LucasArts. They all, they all felt that like sci-fi and fantasy are done. They are, they are effectively mined out by Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. And there's just, you know, anything else that you're doing is derivative. And so if you can just say what is not sci-fi and what is not fantasy you're immediately looking at more creative work. You're looking at sort of un unplowed ground. Um, and, and so I think that's, that was kind of the appeal. Um, I think also it was just that um, 
Tim was very much, he was trying to work very much on his writing at the time. He'd, he'd started as a programmer and then found in, in Monkey Island, he was very much a writer. Um, and so he was looking more at uh, film noir and sort of, you know, screenwriting and, and patter and things that people have. I think he was getting more into that. Uh, he always liked the hot rod stuff. The Day of the Dead stuff is very specific. I think that's sort of a um, one of the one of the other good things we've done at the time because the technology was changing so rapidly. Um, the Day of the Dead stuff is a very good fit for the art style, and the reason for that is that um, 3D had come nowhere. I mean, 3D was basically bare minimum, you know, software rendering, big chunky pixels, really low res textures, very low poly characters. Um, when you saw 3D, it was you know it was noticeably like okay, this is a huge graphical trade-off. Instead of getting nice backgrounds and sprite characters, I'm going to get these chunky sort of, you know, clunky uh, automatons. Uh, think like the first Alone in the Dark game, where it's like there weren't even textures. They're just solid colors. Um, and there's going to be a trade-off there in terms of, you know, uh, frame rates include animation or maybe camera angles um, or, you know, uh, you know, like a walk cycle that, that you can see from different angles as opposed to like a sprite-based thing where it's like, I have to animate these character walking in eight directions. I have to animate this character doing these things in five directions. I have to animate this character doing this thing in one direction, but he's only going to do it in this, in this one place on the screen. Sort of going from 2D to 3D was, was a thing that was clearly going to happen in terms of saving artist and animator labor. But in terms of the trade-off in the aesthetics, it was, it was a very big step down. Um, Tim, I mentioned Alone in the Dark. Uh, Tim played the same game I did right before that, which is good. We both played it. Uh, I'm trying to remember the call. The, I think it was Biohazard. Mm-hmm. Biohazard, yes, it was Biohazard. Uh, Biohazard was a similar game to Alone in the Dark in that it had fixed camera angles, uh, pre-rendered backgrounds, and it had textures. And so in this game, you're sort of a weird cyborg. You wake up in, in some of this weird half-robot, half-person state, and you you know you walk around. But it, fundamentally, it was an adventure game. Uh, it had its own sort of dark humor in it. I think there's a puzzle where you're uh, you're in a cell and you there's a laser and you have to get somebody to cut their arm off in the laser and then you use the arm to get out of the cell and you beat them with the arm or something like that. There's there's all kinds of weird dark humor in there, but it was a game where you're watching this character and all these characters kind of walk around and they're kind of laborious, very low poly things. They look like um, like cardboard boxes, you know, strung you know, uh, cardboard box man. And with uh, with these low poly textures, or low res textures over them, honestly, it looked very much like Minecraft looks now to some extent. Um, except that the artists were really not looking for the retro aesthetic; they were trying to make use of every polygon they could. So, if you if you have a budget of 130 polygons, what does your character look like? So that's what they did. They um, working with that kind of constraint. And so Tim was looking at it and saying, "Okay, what can I do that um, would look good like this? What what?" what art style and that i think is a, is a very kind of that's the leap right there that's the creative leap to say okay how can i turn this constraint into something that fits what i'm doing and so for tim it was looking around and saying okay well i'm looking at these kachinas these little tiny dolls they make sort of rough fashioned clay dolls they make for day of the dead and they're kind of their faces are painted on them uh or their paint clothes on them and they're engaged in everyday activities these little skeletons they're not trying to look exactly like a finely rendered human skull or skeleton. They are, they are approximations and they're, and part of their appeal is the sort of the roughness or the sort of uh, slapdash nature of how they're put together. I think that was the right choice as well, because a lot of the early 3D has aged really badly as well, hasn't it, when you look back on it now? 
Yeah, it really did. Um, and honestly, I I was intimidated. I, I I you know I didn't realize quite the caliber of artists that we would have end up having in Grip Fandango and character design. But um, you know, at the time, I was looking at you know like what do they want me to do? Oh, they want me to make skeletons run around on screen. How am I going to do that? Oh my God, you know, I'm just a student. They know, and this all the imposter syndrome setting in. And there was this amazing uh, uh, demo demo scene demo that had come out called uh, Into the Shadows. And it, like all demo scene stuff, it's like it it ran perfectly exactly, you know, for 60 seconds and then on no other hardware in the future and so on. It could never be made into a game, but it was this very intimidating demo of like, you know, real time 3d skeletons swinging swords and, you know, swinging lanterns and shadows on the walls. And I was like, Oh my God, what have I done? I can't make this game there. They don't know that I'm incompetent. Um, luckily for me, they, they didn't want that. They wanted very clearly, you know, building on the sort of patterns that worked in adventure games, um, you know, fixed cameras, uh, artistically chosen to, to reveal things or, or set a, set a tone rather than dynamic cameras, you know, uh, canned animations for specific actions for, for feedback. You know, when you, when you, when you do a puzzle, when you do the right thing, you need to see that feedback, whether that feedback is a specific line being chosen or an animation playing or things like that. Um, you know, adventure games are just different. Um, and so I, I, I feel really, um, happy. I, 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 these people knew that craft so well. Adventure games were so well known at Lucas at Lucasfilm Games, and the artists themselves were so inspired by the constraints. And, I, and I've learned that about artists in general that that artists work better when you give them constraints. If you give them a constraint, they will do impeccable, amazing work. If you give them an infinite budget, they'll they'll maybe not do their best work. But when they have a budget, it, it sort of inspires them in, in a certain way. And we we had that happening left and right based on the budgets and technology available at the time. You know, in the mid-90s, when we got to that era, I mean, after The Dig and um, when you were working on the Grim Adventure games, I mean, it did kind of seem a bit like, you know, the, the adventure game genre was kind of out of vogue a little bit, obviously, with Sierra going to the wayside as well. I mean, was that a bit of a, a concern? It was. Um, it was. Uh, we'd had Doom and Dark Forces at that point. Um, Jedi Knight was in production and during Jedi Knight. Duke Nukem had come out, Duke Nukem 3D, as well as Quake, first Quake. Um, and uh, certainly there seemed to be you know, these games didn't have in the edge of the Star Wars licenses and were doing huge numbers. Um, whereas the adventure games were falling off and adventure games are very expensive to make. Um, in, in those days, the adventure games were seen as more of a, a large investment because it's a lot of canned um, sequences that only get used once. So you have a, a custom animation that only gets played once in the course of uh, a large game. You have a lot of puzzles, um, hundreds of puzzles, and each one involves hundreds of animations that are custom and special for those puzzles. As opposed to a you know an FPS where you basically need to be like crouch you know shoot look up look down look left look right and you can make that you know um, dynamic you don't have to animate in advance necessarily um, you know you might have a, a a few custom animations for swinging a lightsaber or something like that but then as long as you can blend them with a run you've got run and swing a lightsaber that was what was happening in Jedi Knight so these games are much more cost effective to make at that point. And they're selling well. So at that point, if you're a game developer, a game publisher, like Lucasfilm Games, and you're looking at like, well, here's these things we make. They're they're uh, critical darlings. We love them, but they don't sell at those numbers, and they're very expensive to make. Um, and they're just not in vogue. So you know, it was it was definitely you know, we were in the tail end of the sort of adventure, the, the 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 height of adventure games. Also, like the mists and the uh, and the ribbons of the world were happening then, and they were you know, ridiculously expensive to to render all that. But then 
it, you know, activity was really low. Um, it just seemed like the wrong direction. It was, it became more of a, the, the more the puzzles, puzzle games became about abstractions, like seventh guest style, like you're just going to go into a room and here's a puzzle to solve as opposed to like they're narratively driven or, or clued into a world. It just seemed to be going the wrong way. Well, for about 10 years, uh, LucasArts games have been using the Scum Engine, and the Scum Engine kind of got modified to the point that it was used for Full Throttle and uh, Sam and Max as well. Um, did people want you to use the Scum Engine for Grim Fandango? Uh, they absolutely did. Um, there was an assumption I would use the Scum Engine. Um, I actually, when I arrived, I went through what's called Scum U, Scum University, which is you know kind of onboarding for people who are going to be what are called scumlets, people who work in the Scum toolset. I was on board just to kind of understand what those tools were and did with the expectation that, hey, we'll be making some modifications to these tools to support 3D. There, you know, the, at the time, there had already been a, bro- a break where um, uh, the early Scum crew had, had broken off to form Humongous Games. And uh, the, there were kind of two people left who worked on Scum. Uh, the main person was Eric Wellmander, who was technically my boss, uh, who I reported to as a new programmer. Um, and he was, what well, they, this, the latest in what they call the scum lords, the, the, the rotating position of, you know, who who sort of owns and maintains and expands the scum engine, the, the speed of engine and the scum tools around them. And so they've been doing this for quite some time. They'd also been doing uh, Mac work recently. So uh, Aaron Giles was there as well. He was doing all kinds of work to port it across platforms. So it, it was this, you know, at a time when game engines didn't really exist and every game was kind of bespoke, the adventure game engine and tool set for um, for games that Lucasfilm had been refined, uh, starting right back from Maniac Mansion, that that DNA is right down. You know, it's a hereditary line where each time it's like, okay, for this game we're gonna you know double the size of our characters, and for this game we're gonna make them 256 colors, and for this game um, there's gonna be a new palette, you know, a, a dedicated palette for the inventory, and for this game we're gonna have um, CD streamed audio for voices. Uh, you know, so each game had been sort of adding a feature to this tool set. And then also um, the tool set, the, the tools themselves have been like, you know, ported multiple places and, and, you know, so on. So it had been just kind of field stripped and re- reassembled many, many times over the years. Um, so yeah, there was absolutely from the outset an assumption that I was going to use the, uh, the scum tool set for, for Grim Fandango. And it was a foregone conclusion. Um, I was also arriving shortly after several people had tried something different and it had gone very poorly. One was something called uh, uh, Story Droid, um, which was created as part of the X-Wing and, and um, TIE Fighter games. Story Droid was supposedly going to be, you know, the, the engine for driving all these sort of cutscenes in between the missions. And it was going to be, you know, better for all this stuff. And it really fell down. If you go back and look, those scenes, those cutscenes between those missions, if it's not the remastered ones, they aged incredibly poorly. Um, very, very little animation on screen, you know, um, it, it it was a disaster as far as I can tell. It was it was not right. I mean the, the technology in those games was in the, the flight simulation and that was terrific. That's what totally was totally games was really good at. But the um the story direct part part kind of fell apart. The other thing that happened was um coming off of full throttle and Rebel Assault. So Rebel Assault had this uh, streaming engine, it was very Dutch built for the C D ROM era. Um and then bringing that into full throttle and thinking, Okay, well, we're gonna bring in these streaming backgrounds for Ben Throttle, you know, driving around on these highways. And so they'd kind of broken apart pieces of the Rebel Assault engine and were mashing that together with the Scum engine. You know, it had basically broken the team, you know, trying to make all this stuff work. And it was technically very difficult to pull off and mash these things together, source of a lot of bugs and a lot of heartache, a lot of effort expended on it. 
Uh, developing the grime engine, like, what were your greatest challenges kind of doing that? Um, so the greatest challenge was actually the scripting language. Um, you know, at that point in time, we had enough games who had been doing first-person studio, first-person shooter-type games. We had Outlaws, we had Jedi Knight. Um, the company had standardized, I think, very uh, ahead of its time on sort of modular things, so you could actually say, uh, I'm going to take the asset-loading module from this game, the sound module from that game, and the 3D graphics engine from that game, and I can stick them together. I, as a, as a person kind of standing on the shoulders of giants making these components in these other games, was able to take things like, okay, there's a, there's a library from this game that will render, you know, take a font and render text on the screen in whatever color and shape I want. Hey, that's, that's great. I can make characters talk now like an like a adventure game. That one will play sounds. Uh, this one will rotate through sprites. That one will open a 3D character and play an animation on it. I, I had been really struggling with the scum engine of, you know, how do I bring 3D into this world? Everything is like, there's a, because it was so ported around, there's a lot of fixed point math in it uh, for lower bit, bit platforms. Um, I couldn't get floating point in there easily. Uh, you know, the camera system, there was, no, there was no notion of 3D there. Everything was 2D screen-based stuff. Um, I, I just was having a hard time, you know, seeing how this would work. On the other hand, when I looked at these other games, I was like, well, if I took Jedi Knight and I just didn't have the camera move and then I stuck up a bitmap, you know, then everything there is in 3D. You know, I've already got characters in 3D. I've got a camera in 3D. I've got animations there. I, you know, the engine can already play sounds. It can iterate through Sprite. That's most of an adventure game, right? Um, and that was a demo I did. Um, you know, I kind of, I kind of wanted to show like all the key elements that we need on screen at the same time. So I basically did that. I took, took a, you know, an empty, empty Jedi Knight engine and I, I stripped out a few pieces and I added a few, a font engine and, and something. And I think asset loading from, from outlaws. And I said, okay, here's a demo of, you know, like Ben, you know, the, the bulldog from full throttle animating on screen along with the character, you know, playing an animation. And then like you can hit a button and some text will appear above the character's head. And there's a, there's a background. Great. So now I've proven that I technically have the ability to do all those things, even though I have no idea what bits are being pushed on a PC graphics card to make those happen. I, as a programmer, now have that ranting as a, as a demo. Um, and that went a long way with Tim. But fundamentally, we are like, okay, so are we going to keep the SCUM language, uh, the language interpreter, uh, because we need to, you know, this is, again, a... a, a advanced method at that time, we need to program in a higher level language, right? We, we don't want to be bashing bits together to make Guybrush, you know, make a crack about it, the banana picker. Um, and so, you know, we need a higher level language. We've all learned that in Scum, but that's the most productive way to be. You want to be able to say like, you know, actor X, watch position Y, turn to the camera, say position, say, say line Z, and then play this funny animation. Like you want to be that productive and not have that be like a three week chore. So the biggest part was actually the the, uh, the scripting language. Um, and that was something where I was looking at SCUM again, and it was like, well, can I, can I pull this away? Can I pull um, the language interpreter away from the rest of the engine? And it was proving fairly difficult to extract because um, it wasn't very modular at that point. And... Uh, Again, the language itself had, had difficulty representing numbers, um, fixed point numbers again, where I knew that you would have to refer to things like walk to position, you know, X, Y, Z, where those were floating point locations in the world. 
and it was going to be really difficult to do. So I was like, okay, I got to write my own language. How am I going to do this? Um, and this is, you know, at, at least it was a tractable problem for me because coming from university, I'd written, you know, lexers and parsers and, and the interpreters for languages. So I kind of got that, but it was still the kind of thing where it's like, do you want to do that from scratch just to make a game when there's something that already existed? Well, I've heard that apparently one of the, uh, the 90s most hated characters on computers was actually involved in some of that innovation. Microsoft Clippy now, for those who don't remember, he was the paperclip that would pop up in the corner of Microsoft Word. Oh, it looks like you're writing a letter. Apparently, you used Clippy to develop the lip sync. Um, yes. Um, yes. So Clippy uh, did not himself appear in Group Fandango, um, but I am forever indebted to the unsung hordes of engineers at Microsoft that tried to make Clippy successful because they inadvertently enabled um, a lot of success uh, for me in Grifandango. Um, we had this problem. So I, I'd, I'd made a tool for the artists in cutscenes and the, the sort of pre-rendered scenes. The, uh, the animators needed a, a tool for you know, animating Manny's face textures as they were saying lines and so on. I'd made a tool for that, but we still had this problem with, with real-time lip sync in the game. Uh, we, you know, the, the tradition at, in, um, in the Scum games was that, uh, you know, they had a, a talk animation, a generic talk animation for every character. And if you look at it very carefully, the talk animation is the character saying the word watermelons over and over again, watermelons, watermelons, watermelons. And the reason for that is that it puts your mouth through a range of shapes and it kind of is, you know, just a long enough cycle so it doesn't look very repetitive. And so if you, if you have a character animated saying watermelons, watermelons, watermelons for the duration of a line, you know, you don't think too much of it. Well, in 3D, and especially with very, you know, um, the textures on Manny registering very well in terms of large faces and, and Glottis and other characters in the game, uh, it doesn't work as well. It, their mouths, their heads flap a lot more, their, move, their mouths move a lot more. It, it doesn't look nearly as good. Um, and so we decided that we wanted to try and do some sort of, you know, a little bit more synchronization between their mouth and head positions and, and, um, and uh, what they were saying. I should say it's a little bit more like Nightmare Before Christmas, as, as many animates. It's not just his textures animating; it's also his. He has a few different head shapes as well mm-hmm. for when his jaw is extended and things like that. And so initially, I did a thing where I was. I just took like you know, how loud is this this sound? You know, like what's the what's the frequency and amplitude of this line right now, and just sort of match the character to that. And it just looked like garbage. And I know a lot of games have tried it. I think uh, Halo originally was going to try and do that as well. As players were talking, their characters in game would use the frequency and amplitude to change their face shape it just doesn't look the same you, you know when you're when you're making a sound it's not an instantaneous you know what's the waveform in 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 um in the audio form what's what's there what's the math it's actually you know your your face has made a shape to try and you know make that sound happen and those are phonemes there's no, like eight thousand three hundred lines of dialogue and i had to figure out like okay how do i get phoneme data like where am i going to get that and I was kind of at a loss there and, and was about to give up. And then I was Googling around um, early days of Google. So Google is hugely helpful. And I found that Microsoft Research had this stuff on phoneme recognition, um, which I thought sounded like the right thing. And it, there was a tool for taking a wave file and taking the text that that wave file represented. And they had a tool that would essentially try to insert phonetic markers uh, at the right time code so that it would look like a character was saying those things. Where was this? It was in something called the Microsoft Agent SDK. The Microsoft Agent SDK was this elaborate, like, full API SDK for Windows for you to create what are called Microsoft Agents. And agents 
or what Clippy was. If you remember, you could you didn't just have Clippy. As a dog uh, as well? You could actually, there was a dog, yeah. there was a rocket, and there was Einstein. There were a few others, right? And so Microsoft had this idea that this that these things would be wildly successful, and that all kinds of programs would be coming up with new avatars for their products, and that all of them would have new things that those things need to do, which were not these base five animations of like tapping on the screen or waiting for input or whatever, but they would want them to actually you know, talk to the user and talk them through operations as, as they would help them. And so they had made this elaborate SDK, this HSDK, that allowed you to create your own Einstein or dog or your rocket with custom animations that weren't those basic animations. And in particular, they had this thing for you know, making your character actually talk. And this was, by the way, never used, as far as I could tell, like any product ever, the consumer reaction was so overwhelmingly bad to Krippy, nobody even talked about the other characters. And I, as far as I can tell, no, no company ever used this SDK to make any product ever. Well, Grim Fandango was such a kind of cult title, you know, it, it got a huge following, and uh, they ended up doing a remastered version in 2015. Um, what did you think of that version? Because I know they used a lot of the... Uh, original assets that were available? Um, you know, I'm so grateful that it was done at all. Um, you know, I, I, my kids, I had kids after this period and, and they knew that I had been a game developer, but uh, obviously I didn't have a Windows 95 PC hanging around that on which to play from Fandango. And so, uh, and then when there were some bugs in the game that I think, you know, when you have higher clock speeds, they show up, we, we were doing very simple linear interpolation on some of the animation. And, and when you have high frame rates uh, and high resolution, that, that looks very sort of robotic and, and sort of hitchy. Um, I, I was very frustrated that I couldn't, you know, the game was not aging well. Um, so to me, it was a huge boon. When I heard they were doing it, I got very excited. Um, I, I had uh, nicked various assets with me when I left. Uh, I had the code, uh, which, was, which nobody else had. But, you know, this is at the point LucasArts Games is no longer a, a thing, so this is you know Disney and 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 um, Double Fine and, and PlayStation trying to mine all the assets together. Uh, I had only the shipping assets of the game; I didn't have the original assets, so like the soft homage uh, files or 3ds Max animations, things like that. Um, actually, most of it was soft homage. Um, I didn't have the source assets; I had the sort of baked assets that shipped in the game. Um, but even that was, uh, I think, a huge leg up. The people who worked on it, Double Fine, were, were super fans. Uh, they had already kind of made their, reverse engineered, made their own engine for Grim Fandango. I'm not sure how much of my code they actually reused. Um, but they certainly had it to look for and say, like, well, what was happening there? How did that work? What did they do? And they go, oh, okay, we can re-implement that this way or whatever. Uh, I was at PlayStation at the time. I worked at PlayStation. I knew this was happening. I got to go to the E3 conference where they announced it um, during the PlayStation press conference. And I was in that stadium. And of course it's jam packed full. And these are a lot of uh, game journalists and game developers, uh, not a lot of the public at E3 uh, during the, the, the uh, press conferences, but a lot of games journalists and, and game developers and producers and, and so on. And they said they're, you know, we're bringing back all classic and they kind of had this gigantic piece of Peter Chan concept art, the black and white concept art on the wall and the music swelled. Uh, the, the the main theme from Grim Pandango, the place erupted. I mean, this is, you know, they just spent 60 minutes watching these stunning looking games, but nobody had had the reaction like Grim Pandango. And this is, and I was, I was so moved uh, to think that, you know, something I had done had affected so many people. I'm looking at a stadium full of people erupting in front of me. Um, we didn't have that kind of feedback when making the game. We didn't know if we were making anything good. 
Um, we were just exhausted at the end of it. You know, the game kind of broke us as a team. We didn't talk for months afterwards. Um, you know, and we kind of just walked away from it and, and we knew that it was a, a, a done well, but it was always sort of as this, this sort of swan song for the adventure genre at that point. Um, so to see that happen was kind of astonishing. And then also, I think, again, uh, you saw that point in time where it was no longer about pushing the edge of the technology, but now you had enough room to play where you could have adventure games on a game console where, you know, people were, were looking for the experiences that weren't like the bleeding edge graphics, but were the story driven stuff where you had a lot of writing coming into, you know, the last of us or uncharted, or you had, um, you know, smaller scale adventure games, indies that could say a lot in, but be lower budget productions. And that was, that was a worthwhile part of what gamers should experience. And so as that opened back up, I think Grimm came in right at the right time there uh, in this remastered edition to kind of, I don't know if it, I don't know if it kindled it or rode that wave, whatever it is, but it, it was, it was the right thing at the right time, you know? And then for me personally, like having it available on every single device I own, uh, Double Fun did a great job of taking it across platforms, and I know a lot of people were exposed to it. I know it got you know on the Apple Store and and the Google Play Store, and it's been through various iterations. This because a lot more people played it. I will say, I think modern gamers have a hard time with it because it's a difficult game. Yeah. Um, it does not coddle you, it does not help you, um, and it does rely on something that was commonplace at the time, which was like an adventure game is no, adventure gamers' notion of like being able to recognize when something is a puzzle versus it's not implemented. Um, so when something you see something and it's like, I need to get in that room, but it's locked. Like my wife played it and she's like, Oh, well, and I was like, well, why aren't you trying to get in? She's like, well, it's, he said it's locked. <laughs> you know, it's like an adventure game. It's like, Oh, that's a puzzle. I need to get in that room. You know? And if you really want to these days, I mean, you can always Google a walkthrough. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Now, now, you know, I, I have to say one of, one of my, one of my uh, surreal experiences was when it came out, um, I didn't want to play it, but what I did is I got on, uh, I got on Twitch. And I watched other people playing it and it was this incredible experience. Like, uh, you know, I, I remember when I, when I, when I was in college and I brought Monkey Island and I would, I would sit people down who didn't play games in front of it. And I would sort of give them as few hints as possible until they felt productive and comfortable playing the game. And then just watching them play and watching them experience and, and what do they, what do they try and what do they fumble against? Um, and I think the Twitch audience, it was so great because the people who, who stream, they talk, they have a running commentary on what they're thinking or responding to the game and, and, and how they're thinking about approaching it and whatever. We never had that. Like we never had the sort of focus testing or usability testing you have in games now. Like we just had to make this thing and like based on our best understanding of what an adventure game should be and like our own testers and then throw it over the wall. And um, seeing like having that sort of first hand ability to watch people and like, oh my God, if only we put in one line that said this, then this person totally would have got that puzzle first off the bat, not been stuck. Um, and so I, I was watching a Twitch, a Twitch stream, and I was, and then people were talking about the history of the game and like who made it and what was this. And I started answering all these questions. So I started, you know, giving running commentary like, oh, this scene, you know, you'll notice this is that was added later, blah blah. blah. And people like, how do you know so much about this game? And I'm like, well, I'm I'm the, was the lead programmer and assistant designer of this game, and. Then people freak out in the Twitch stream, and you know they were very excited. <laughs> well, bro, I think it is testament to the the amazing work that you and the team did on the game that audiences, old and new, are still enjoying it over you know two decades later, pretty much. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on this week and sharing your stories. It's been fascinating talking to you. Well, thanks for having me. You know, every time I do something like this, it's always a walk down memory lane, and um, you know, it, it all comes back to me very richly. And I, I appreciate the opportunity and and uh, having people who are interested and want to. I hear these details is, is terrific, so thanks for, for providing me uh, the safe talk. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.